Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's Banking Editor. Joining me in the studio is Caroline Binham, our Financial Regulation Correspondent, while we'll be joined over the phone by Olaf Storbeck, our Frankfurt correspondent, and there'll be a segment from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. First, we'll be discussing the guilty verdict handed out this week to the former head of cash foreign exchange trading at HSBC by a US jury. Second, we'll hear about Germany's Commerzbank Bank and how it's hired investment banking advisors to prepare for potential takeover bids from foreign rivals. And finally, we'll hear an interview with Jack Coco, chief executive of AlphaSense, a company that is using artificial intelligence to try to change the way professional research is done. So starting with HSBC, Mark Johnson, who was HSBC's head of global cash foreign exchange trading, was this week found guilty of defrauding a client in a $3.5 billion currency deal, which is a landmark legal decision that could have far-reaching implications for the workings of the FX markets. Caroline, tell us a bit about how the trial progressed and what the arguments on both sides were. Well, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of nervous Forex traders today in light of Mr. Johnson's conviction. It was a pretty speedy deliberation by the jury. They only took a few days to return the verdict. And that was after only a three-week trial, which by comparison to UK trials was pretty speedy. Essentially, it was an old-fashioned front-running case. The prosecution alleged that Johnson breached confidentiality due to HSBC's client, Cairn Energy. They were about to do a $3.5 billion currency trade and HSBC and Johnson and his traders essentially armed with that knowledge that the trade was about to go ahead, ramped the price of pound sterling, bought ahead of the trade and sold after and therefore netted themselves a pretty handsome profit. What Johnson's lawyer said was that actually this was a very conventional pre-hedging strategy, which is widespread amongst currency dealers. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. And actually, the US were trying to make something criminal that was pretty everyday practice. Now, Forex markets are renowned for being pretty lightly regulated. And as you said, the defence argued that this was a standard practice in FX markets to pre-hedge, particularly a a sizable FX transaction like this. So what seemed to undermine the defence's case for Mr. Johnson? Well, on your first point, it's correct that back in 2011, which is when the trades happened, Forex was a largely unregulated market. And obviously, since then, we've had the big Forex rigging scandal. Banks paid about $10 billion worth of penalties as a result of that. And Johnson's arrest at JFK Airport 
was the DOJ's big success. However, it doesn't really have much to do with the rigging that the banks paid penalties for, and I'll come to that in a minute. However, in terms of what undermined Johnson's case that this was a pretty traditional pre-hedging strategy were some of the emails and the phone calls that the jury heard, and we can play some excerpts now. I mean, obviously, we've got a bit of way to go, right? But I don't know what his average is, but as long as it's under that rate, they can't really complain, right? Yeah. If it's over 57.30, they're going to squeal. If it's over what? If it's over 50, well, it was around yeah. 56.30 when they called us, right? I mean, spent most of the morning around 56.20.30. So we should probably make sure we don't ramp it up through there. I don't know what his average is. I don't know how much you've got. Seeing the, the starting to bite. Uh, full amount. No, you're kidding. Yes. Two, Fuck. two and a quarter. Oh, fucking Christmas. Okay. All right. Um, good man. Thank okay. you. Okay, bye. bye. Those recordings of Johnson's comments seem to have been a pretty key factor in undermining the defence that this was just standard practice pre-hedging and in fact led the jury to believe that it was more front-running of the client's orders. Now, there is another element of this case, which is that Johnson's colleague, or former colleague, I should say, Stuart Scott, is facing an extradition hearing in the UK later this week. The US are seeking to press similar charges against him, is that right? Yeah, so Johnson was indicted with Stuart Scott. They are alleged co-conspirators. So, yeah, things have got automatically a lot bleaker for Mr. Scott overnight. What's going to happen on Thursday is purely on the merits of the US government's extradition arguments. They're not going to be deciding whether Scott is guilty of the same charges as Johnson. It's purely whether the US government is correct to want to extradite him to the US to stand jury trial in the same way as Johnson. However, one of the arguments that a magistrate's court in this country will always deliberate over is the so-called forum bar. So is this alleged wrongdoing a crime in both countries? They'll be looking at whether any other alleged co-conspirators have already been tried in that particular country. And obviously Johnson has been tried and now convicted. So in that respect, it doesn't look great for Mr Scott. However, he will, if he is extradited, face a jury trial in the normal way. And it's always possible that that will return a not guilty verdict. In terms of DOJ, it's a great philosophical win for them because they have had a few setbacks with transatlantic investigations of late. I'm thinking of the JP Morgan Whale case that they've had to drop in the LIBOR rigging scandal, which obviously preceded that with Forex. The only convictions that they've managed to secure against a couple of British former Rabobank traders those convictions have been quashed and that was over how evidence is shared amongst prosecutors and regulators on both sides of the pond. They've also got this bigger case that emanates from the forex rigging scandal against the so-called cartel. And those are former traders of City, JP Morgan and Barclays. And those are the traders that wrote the emails that really became infamous during the forex rigging scandal. In a way, they really don't have anything to do with Johnson's case at all beyond the word Forex was in the DOJ's press release. And it's going to be a much more interesting case to see how that progresses. Those cartel so-called traders haven't fought extradition, though they're all British based, and they're going to try their luck in New York. And they're currently having some pretrial hearings right now. 
Yeah, and that's an antitrust uh, case where they were allegedly colluding to try and move markets in their favour rather than specifically front-running a client's orders. Um, Exactly. Okay. All right, Clara, thank you very much. So turning to Commerzbank, Germany's second largest listed lender has drafted in financial advisors at Goldman Sachs and Rothschild as it braces for potential takeover bids from European rivals. Commerzbank is one of the biggest lenders to the German Mittelstand, which is the network of small and medium-sized companies that form the economic backbone of Europe's largest economy. So there is an attractive business there, but the bank has been beset by poor performance for many years and was bailed out during the financial crisis by the German government. So it's not an obvious situation as to why anyone would want to buy the bank or indeed whether a deal will happen. But the fact that Comets Bank has hired advisors is extremely interesting. And joining us to discuss the latest developments there is Olaf Storbeck, our new FT correspondent in Frankfurt. Olaf, hello. Good story today. I see that it's moved the markets. Comets Bank shares are up over 3%, I think, on the news of them hiring advisors. Can you just tell us a bit about the timing of this move and whether you think, given the political situation with the recent election, that things are heading towards a potential deal? Are things hotting up over there? Well, things are surely, well, I'm not sure if I would call it hotting up, but warming up, that's for sure. I think given the election and the fact that Germany doesn't have a new coalition and only has a kind of caretaker government at the moment, there won't be a deal in the coming months and the coalition talks will drag on probably at least until Christmas. And before that, nothing will happen in Berlin and with a 15.6% stake, the German government is basically the key player in this whole thing. As long as they don't make up their mind, nothing will happen. And the finance ministry has made clear they are not feeling under time pressure They are not rushing to a deal, and they also are keen on getting a good deal for the taxpayer. And Comet has been one of the best-performing German stocks over the last 12 months, but it's still at 11.40 or 11.80 euros. It's still less than half of what the government paid per share when it bailed out the bank in 29. And politically, do you think that a foreign takeover of Germany's second biggest listed lender is possible? Do you think there would be political resistance to that? Because there's been rumours of interest from BNP Paribas and Société Générale in France, as well as from Unicredit, Italy's biggest bank, which has a sizable presence in Germany as well. So what do you think about the political potential obstacles here? Yes, it depends probably a bit on the country where the bidder is coming from. So there were some reports that Berlin, by Wirtschaftswoche, the the weekly magazine, that Berlin was kind of quite in favor of a deal with BNP Paribas. A French buyer would probably politically more palpable and more digestible for Germany than an Italian bidder, mainly for the reason that eventually a bank's strength, even in today's banking union in the EU, is eventually determined by the strength of the sovereign it is hosted. And given the budgetary issues and the high debt of Italy, and also the political instability in Italy, Berlin would probably be much more reluctant to get the most important lender of the German Mittelstand into Italian hands, basically. And finally, Olaf, what about the potential for further domestic consolidation in Germany? Because I seem to remember last year that Deutsche Bank 
the country's biggest listed lender and Commerce Bank held abortive talks of some kind about a potential merger there. Is that potential deal completely off the table or could that resurface at some point? I don't think a merger of Deutsche and Commerce is completely off the table. It is a matter of time. Deutsche definitely needs a couple of more years at least to sort out its own issues. And once they've done this, and if they are able to do this successfully, it's probably the most straightforward option because the synergy potential in retail banking, which is not very profitable and has been facing really tight competition in Germany for decades due to the network of local savings banks and cooperative banks, is probably the best way to get to one really strong German lender. And also a cross-border merger, either with BNP or with Unicredit, would also be a bit of a problem for Deutsche Bank. And one other political angle would be the question, would Berlin really be willing to basically weaken Deutsche Bank? And one source I talked to said, well, if they approve a merger with Unicredit or BNP or somebody from abroad, a big bank from abroad, it would basically be an admission that Deutsche is really beyond repair and would weaken Deutsche Bank significantly. And it's questionable if Berlin would really be willing to do this. So, so this it's, yeah, it's a question of time before Deutsche gets its act together and is strong enough to do a deal. Maybe that's why the foreign bidders are looking at a possible deal now, while Deutsche is still too weak to go ahead with such a deal. So interesting situation to watch. Olaf, thank you very much for joining us and talking to us. And we'll follow that very closely, I'm sure. And for our final segment, we're going over to New York to hear Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, interview Jack Coco, chief executive of AlphaSense, a company using artificial intelligence to change the way professional research is done. Jack Coco, thank you very much for joining us. Let's talk quickly about uh, AlphaSense, uh, what it is, what you do, and uh, how you're transforming lives of uh, analysts around the world. Good. Well, um, AlphaSense, you can think of uh, us as a sort of Google for research professionals, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, analysts or portfolio managers at hedge funds, mutual funds, investment banks, and then business professionals in corporations. And what people uh, use AlphaSense for is uh, finding information that used to be extremely hard to locate in corporate filings, equity research, news, company presentations, all this content, tens of millions of documents that are mm-hmm out there on, on public companies as well as private. As an analyst, uh, I was printing out big piles of paper on my desk and flipping pages. You were more information. Uh, that's right. It's, uh, it's a while ago, but I still remember all those uh, long nights and weekends uh, manually looking for information, and we wanted to build a lot of automation on top of that, just mm-hmm. uh, leverage AI and uh, cloud computing, machine learning, yeah. to, to help automate some of those uh, grunt tasks mm-hmm. that are keeping analysts busy and allowing them to focus on connecting the dots. Well, talking to any analyst these days or any head of investment research in the US, they're all terrified about the impact of MIFID, which is coming down the pipe very rapidly. MIFID, of course, is an EU directive designed to provide more transparency into the pricing of investment research. To what extent will it affect um, the way you go about your business? Well, we are certainly hearing uh, some of those uh, doomsday concerns and predictions and and also some more optimistic ones. And uh, really, it depends on who you talk to. But uh, uh, what we are seeing is uh, really a big shakedown happening. That's that's one thing that's uh, certain. And uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, negotiations still happening between buy-side and sell-side participants. In so who's shaking who down in this scenario? Uh, well, it's it's hard to tell, but I could imagine uh, a lot of buy-side firms trying to, trying to see if this is an opportunity to re- reduce their spending or at least target their spending on where they believe they're getting value. And, mm-hmm. and 
where we come in is uh, we've seen that there's really a, a big gap in, in uh, the data that people have at their hands to really be able to make a, a smarter data-driven dig- uh, uh, decision of uh, who's among the sell-side firms who's providing high-value research for you know this biotech theme or that energy team on a buy-side firm's roster to decide uh, who deserves uh, the dollars after this, uh, this reshuffle happens. Yeah. How do you go about beginning the conversation? How, how do you put a price on research? Well, one good way to do that is to try to determine where, where, really the, where the quality research lies. There's a huge volume of research being published uh, tens of thousands of reports every day and a lot of it is uh, uh, you know you've got these couple of two-page uh, uh, reports that go out after every earnings uh, announcement uh, and uh, every little update by the company that pretty much repeats what the company said and then you've got at the other end really thoughtful deep PCs thematic analysis on cross-sector trends that are uh, affecting industries uh, and companies uh, that uh, are really delivering a lot of value and what we're trying to do is uh, follow uh, and help a buy-side firm and an analyst understand where they really got value. What reports did they spend uh, mm-hmm. two minutes, two seconds on, or 20 minutes on, and where did they actually find really valuable insights that they highlighted, annotated, yeah. or perhaps even extracted data um, and forecast into Excel and doing their analysis based on a report. There's a huge difference between those endpoints and that's what we're trying to help uh, buy-side firms determine as well as sell-side. And uh, I think that's hopefully going to help the whole industry, uh, from our perspective, get to a better, more efficient uh, outcome here where, based on better data, you, you kind of determine who's providing best value here and there and then allocating research dollars uh, accordingly. What does your analytics suggest at the moment? Is, is there a vast amount of research that's just never read or just briefly clicked on and then ignored? There's absolutely a vast amount of research that is just briefly clicked on and, and, and not read. And then there's, there's a smaller proportion, uh, but still a very significant amount of research that is getting deep readership. In the past, just nobody's known which is which mm-hmm. uh, and, and which reports are uh, just clicked on versus uh, uh, read and, and analyzed more deeply. It's been just uh, impossible to do uh, when a lot of research went out uh, in the broad email distribution lists or were just opened up as PDFs where you could see that a report was open, but you didn't see anything beyond that. So we've tried mm-hmm. to go much deeper than that and analyze the actual engagement with, uh, with reports so you can determine where you got value and where you didn't. Yeah, another theme I, I've been noticing in recent years, I'm not the only one, of course, is, is, the, is the sort of slow death of the sell recommendation. I went through the Bloomberg terminal and, and looked at it empirically, and the median consensus recommendation has, has crept up you know, incrementally over the past few years. What, what, what does that mean? Does this reflect the overpowering influence of the corporate finance departments, all the money that's made through you know, roadshows and so on, and banks just don't want to jeopardize their, those relationships by, by having some guy in the corner putting a sell rating on? There certainly is... Um quite a bit of that going on uh, where if you're an analyst, you want to have access to companies that you're covering. You, you want to be perceived as an expert in those companies and uh, the, their industries. And if you get into sort of a virtual penalty box by <laughs> having accelerating in a company, you might might have trouble actually getting those insights. So there's definitely a, a challenge there. And you know, you're absolutely right. If, uh, if you look at the statistics, they're just even uh, 10, 15 years ago, were uh, more sell ratings, relatively speaking. And people expected that once once you separate, kind of put a Chinese wall between banking and research, that you'd, you'd have more sell ratings and less, less buy ratings. But uh, the end result really has been the opposite. But but I think uh, maybe you shouldn't care so much about that. And, and 
look at um, where where is the, really the value and the insight within the report. Can you glean something from the language that tells you uh, what the analyst really thinks about where the company is going and what okay. their strengths are, what their risks are. So in, you in the need business. some kind of tool like AlphaSense to, to help you sift through that. Well, certainly uh, we, we do try to help there. And uh, if you uh, start from kind of the traditional model of where you receive research by email and you read those reports you happen to notice and or you, you see a headline that you happen to like, um, that's one way to consume research. The other one is uh, perhaps to start with hey, I'm looking at a a theme that I want to understand or I need to quickly get up to speed on this company and let me find the most uh, relevant reports to, you know, what their growth plans are in China, for example. And uh, finding the most relevant research across 1,000 providers is is not an easy task, but uh, that's where technology comes in and certainly can help. Jack Coco, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is thank Caroline, Olaf and Ben for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.